When we began our sermon series on the Psalms, I introduced something that a guy named Walter Brueggemann, uh, categories that he gave for each of the Psalms to, to help us in reading them. And the first, of course, were the, the Psalms of Orientation that we spent a couple of weeks looking at. Those are the Psalms that are written with, with it seems as though, no awareness that anything has gone wrong in the world, that everything is exactly at God, as God wishes and exactly as God wills for it to be. All is ordered and all is structured as God intended it to be. And then we move to a second category of the Psalms, the Psalms of disorientation, where it's the exact opposite of those first groups of Psalms, where it seems like nothing is going like it should, where there seems to be suffering and sickness and death and chaos. And so we come now to the third group of Psalms, the Psalms of reorientation or of new orientation. These are Psalms that are now written from the perspective of one who has already passed through whatever was the hardship and whatever was the struggle, and they now look back, making evaluation of their times in desolation and in disorientation and talk about God and His powerful and His faithful provision and sustenance of their lives. Psalm 30, of course, uh, I'm categorizing as a psalm of reorientation. In the New Revised Standard, there is this header for this psalm, Thanksgiving for recovery from grave illness. And when you see the word recovery, you know, that psalm of reorientation. We've now passed through and God has delivered the person for which they've been praying. And so this is the beginning of the psalm that we read. I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and did not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cried to you for help, and you have healed me. O Lord, you brought my soul from Sheol, restored me to life from among those who have gone down to the pit. So we see that the psalmist writes from the privileged perspective of one who has already been delivered. God has intervened, and David now sees God's provision. He looks back over the events, and he sees what God has done. He likens God as to one who has pulled him out of a deep pit or a deep well. And God has saved him from all of those who stood around him, laughing him and mocking him for his trust in God. And so we see David's statements in these first three verses as well-balanced to the point. They're almost mathematical. There's little drama here because all of those ups and downs that we experience as we're going through the turmoil, when we look back at it, it seems so much more even keeled, so much less serious than when we were going through it. So the pain has now disappeared. You look back from this long perspective of time. Do you remember in Psalm 21, verse 1, where, where David was, was groaning and using that language, the same language of the lion roaring, the, those noisiness of the times of desolation? And now there's this just straight retelling that God came through. See, that's what happens often in our lives, isn't it? In fact, this week I discovered, women, you want to pay attention, one of the most... Um, Clinically proven ways to reduce the pain of childbirth. You know what it is? It's time. 
There was a research done by a, a Swedish researcher, and she uh, interviewed over a thousand people, and she asked them uh, two months after the baby was born how painful it was on a scale of one to seven, one being no pain at all, seven being the most excruciating thing that they've been through. And then she asked again at the baby's one-year birthday and asked again at the baby's five-year birthday. And what do you think happened in their reflection of how painful the experience was over time? If they said seven, five years later, they still said seven. But if it was anything less than a seven, their numbers would decrease over time. There was one lady who said it was a seven at childbirth, and five years later, she said it was a one, no pain at all. Time has a way of changing our memory of pain and our experience in those unbearable times. See, as we look more closely at verse 2, we find that it's kind of what we expect After time has passed, I cried to you for help, and then there's that comma. And if you've been in the I've cried to you for help stage in the time of disorientation, that feels like forever. Weeping night after night, as the psalmist says, staying awake, begging and pleading. And now we have just this comma and you have healed me. See, that's one of the mistakes we make sometimes when we read the biblical text is when words are close together, we think they must chronologically be close together. But here, think of all the emotion and the suffering and the struggling that's wrapped up in that comma between crying out for help and between God healing. But yet, from the perspective of, of been through, going through that, it seems like just a short comma And yet we can read about those sufferings as we look at David when he writes in those times of disorientation. The emotions, the energy have passed away. And you see there's new life and new faith renewed in the God who delivers. And so from the back end of the pain, David's observation is that his anger is for but a moment. And his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may linger for the night. But joy comes with the morning. We recognize that our relationship with time is not static, is it? People often say, well, there's 24 hours in a day and everyone has 24 hours. But 24 hours can feel very different. Think about the 24 hours in the two weeks of vacation that you get. Those 24 hours go by really quickly, don't they? Think about the 24 hours when you're at home sick and vomiting throughout the day. That feels like a very long 24 hours. What we find here is that the perspective that we're going through in the moment is very different than the perspective that when we look back. See, I think that there's those times for all of us when the clock seems to slow. Minutes feel like hours. Hours like days, days like weeks, weeks like months, and it just seems like everything is going to slow down and stop. And we wonder, we wonder if it's ever going to end. Is there ever going to be a time that I'll be able to look back on this and say, God has healed me. God has shown up. And so David, what he does with our expectations is he turns them upside down. David says his anger is for a moment. When we experience it, do we experience it for a moment? We experience that as a very long time. So David is trying to to reorient our perspective. He's trying to make us to see that those times in our suffering, 
Those times in our hardship are not for long, even though they feel like they last forever. So in the time when we are under his anger, his punishment, our suffering, our discipline, David says, though they feel like a long time, they are in fact for but a moment. And sometimes it feels like his favor is not for a lifetime, but for a moment. There are some people when things are going good for them, do you know what they spend their time doing? They spend their time looking over their shoulder saying, I know the bad news is coming. Because they expect it to just be momentary before trouble comes once again. So David is trying to, in light of who God is and in light of what God is doing, he is trying to give us a perspective when we're going through those times when we suffer and when we struggle. And I think David understands this as he uses this word lingering. Weeping may linger for the night. The translation may call it enduring or lasting or tarrying. Now, I don't know why, and I have a great relationship with my in-laws, but I couldn't help but think of in-laws when I think of lingering. Have you ever had in-laws who come and it feels like that visit just lingers? And you remind each other, the morning will come. The bags will be packed, and yes, they will go home. That's this notion and this, this sentiment. No matter how long it feels like it's happening, no, it has just been three days, even if it's felt like three months that they've been there. Paul is helping us, or David is helping us to realize that we take solace in the fact that the weeping will pass. The sun will rise. And joy will once again come to renew our perspective on what God has been about and what God has been doing. And so David said, as for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. But your favor, O Lord, you had established me as a strong mountain. You hid your face and I was dismayed. See, an important thing to note about the Psalms of reorientation is that we never return to a former state. When God delivers us, we will never be the same person as we were on the front end of that suffering, that discipline, that hardship. And I think that's very intentional because sometimes, as is the case in this, God may bring about our suffering because there is something he needs to change within us. And so we, we are to notice that life is constantly moving and changing. And we don't go back to where we were before, but we become something new. I remember when I was getting ready to go to college, uh, somebody said, when you leave for college, you never go back home. And I thought, I don't know what that means. Until, guess what? Until I went back home. Now, your parents may not have changed your bedroom into a guest room and put a purple comforter on it. And even if they didn't, I bet you experienced what it was meant. You go and you make friends at college and you have your own rhythms and you have your own routines and you go home. But home just doesn't feel as much like home anymore. That's what happens through the Psalms of reorientation. God is not bringing us back to where we were before, but he is bringing us to somewhere new. Where we experience something different and hopefully something better. But we will be changed through the experience. I think of, of Job. If you've ever read uh, the, the story of Job, you find out that at the very beginning, his, his sons and his daughters die, seven sons and three daughters. And then in the ending, in, in Job 42.10, we're told that he has an additional seven sons and three daughters. So does Job then say, I am now where I was before? Can you replace and substitute children for children? No. 
But as you have new children, can you reestablish a new relationship with them, very different from the former children? You see, it is this reminder that we are not going to ever go back to where we were before when we go through a time of disorientation. But God will bring us to a new and hopefully to a better place where we ourselves are different and our context is different. See, David is very open about the fact of the reason why he is going through this season of disorientation because he needed to be changed. He, in the situation and in the circumstance, needed God to do something to intervene. And so God did intervene with sickness, and David calls God's intervention his anger. It was brought about by David's very own sinfulness. And his sinfulness, I think, is seen in that pride that he displayed. When he says, I shall not be moved, God established him as a strong mountain. See, there's an irony When God blesses us with prosperity, that we can lean on that prosperity as our stronghold. That we can become so confident that God blesses us with a mountain that we say, I'm now indestructible. And when we get to that place where we think that we ourselves can sustain the mountain, that we ourselves are the source of the blessing, I think God does need to come in anger to humble us. To have us go through a season where he brings us low once again. In the Proverbs it says, pride comes before destruction and a haughty spirit before the fall. See, the very irony of this is the thing that God intended for favor and blessing for David was the very thing that led to his downfall. And God knew that David needed to be humbled, humbled, so he brought this sickness upon him. And it was in that sickness that David cried out, To you, O Lord, I cried, and to the Lord I made supplication. What profit is there in my death? If I go down to the pit, will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be gracious to me, O Lord, my helper. See, David's pleading here, it is based on God's faithfulness. How can David speak about God's faithfulness if he is not faithful? It's based on God's character, He knows God to be gracious, and so he appeals to God's graciousness. But the purpose of David's pleading isn't, this is so painful and I don't want to be sick anymore. The purpose of his pleading is is not centered about him as an individual. The purpose of his pleading is centered in the glory of God. If I die, who will praise you? Who will tell the people of your faithfulness? As Derek Kinder says, he says, you will gain nothing and you will lose a worshiper. That's David's argument. His appeal is to the glory of God. And if David is delivered from the sickness, then he can tell people of God's once again and ongoing faithfulness. And so Kinder suggests that in our times of disorientation, when we are suffering, the question we need to be asking ourselves is how can this bring glory to God? What would it look like for us to be a people who begin to pray our sufferings for the glory of God? God, if you deliver me here, here is an opportunity for your name to receive glory. But are we willing to consider the next thing? Father, if in my death that offers you more glory, may I choose that pathway. That's the very example we have of Jesus, isn't it? Jesus knew the Father would receive more glory in his own death, and so he chose not his own will, but the will of the Father. Can we learn as a people to make our case before God based on his glory? 
It is in verse 11 that David once again returns to the perspective, having walked through this journey, where he says, You have turned my mourning into dancing. You have taken off my sackcloth and clothed me with joy. Now, I'm no Eugene Peterson. He's the one who translated the message. But here's my contemporary translation of this. He removed our black funeral suit and put on a Hawaiian shirt. I mean, isn't that what he said? We, we went from this, this clothing of mourning, what we wear when we weep, and now we are dressed in a mode or a place of celebration. But notice verse 12, where this text has been moving towards, this happens so that my soul may praise you and not be silent. When God delivers his people, when we find ourselves in the place where we've now walked through the valley of the shadow of death and God has delivered us, there is a responsibility and that is not to be silent. But instead, the responsibility is to tell of God's provision. And so he says, O Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. David's appeal was, if I die, who's going to tell of your greatness? And God delivered him from the disease. So now what's David's responsibility? To go and tell of God's greatness. So David, through being brought low in this circumstance, is able to lift God up. What I want us to do now is to talk a little bit about the larger context of this psalm and its application for our lives. If you look at the, the, the subheader to this psalm, it says, Psalm, a song at the dedication of the temple, also could be translated as house, of David. Now, a couple of things may be strange to you. The first off, first off might be that you would say, Now, if I remember chronologically correct, by the time the temple is dedicated... David is dead. Well, yeah, that's correct. What we find here is that, that David's writing of this psalm is repurposed for the occasion of the temple. For whatever reason, they see David dealing with this sickness offers some sort of parallel that they think needs to be shared at the dedication of the psalm. And I find that ironic. When you're dedicating a temple, why tell the story about a guy who got sick and then God delivered him? And I think therein is what we find the reason why this psalm was repurposed for the temple dedication. I think it's repurposing for our lives too. This psalm shows that there is an ever-present danger for the people of God to allow God's special care and provision to be the very thing that leads to our downfall. It's a reminder as the people are celebrating, this is the temple of the Lord, and God has blessed us, and he has shown us that we are his chosen people. They're looking back at David's experience and saying, don't let that happen to you. Where you as a people can borrow the language of David and say, we shall not be moved. Taking the blessings of God and using them to prop up your own confidence in your own ability and in your own self is a very dangerous thing. And so when they dedicate the temple, what they are saying is, don't let what happened to David with the blessings of God happen with this very temple. That it becomes the cause for our destruction. That it becomes the cause for our downfall. God made David a strong mountain and that strong mountain became the source that pulled him away from God. And this isn't the first time in the Bible we've heard this theme. To be careful with the blessings of God. Echoing from long ago Deuteronomy 8, 11 and 14. Take care that you do not forget the Lord your God by failing to keep his commandments, his ordinances, and his statutes, which I am commanding you today. 
When you have eaten your fill and have built fine houses and live in them, when your herds and flocks have been multiplied and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied. So we're talking about a blessing, right? What's the risk? What's the danger? Verse 14, then do not exalt yourselves, forgetting the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Now, I don't know when this psalm was written. I don't know in what ways it was repurposed. But we will find as we continue to read the Old Testament that the temple will find itself at the epicenter of the fall of the people of God. That was the concern, and we've read this text a lot as a congregation. The concern in Jeremiah 7 was that as people would go to the temple of the Lord, they would essentially say like David said, God can't touch us. We've been made so strong here. We are invincible. And so Jeremiah 7, 3 through 4 says, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Amend your ways and your doings, and let me dwell with you in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. The very thing that God blesses us with can become the source of our downfall. If we allowed it, allow it to prop up a sense of pride, of self-dependence there. See, that which God gave for a blessing became the stumbling block. And so Israel, as it's talked about the temple, is talked about very much like David's sickness. This is Ezekiel 39, verses 23 and 24. And all the nations shall know that the house of Israel went into captivity for their iniquity. Because they dealt treacherously with me. So I hid my face from them and gave them into the hands of their adversity. Ad, ad, ad. Somebody help me with that word. Adversaries. Adversaries that's the word there. Uh, I am ESL, so okay. And they fell by the sword. I dealt with them according to the uncleanness and their transgression, and I hid my face from them. See, when God is, when you as an individual rebel or as a community of people rebel against God, he hides his face from them. He turns away. And so for Israel, it was the temple that caused this. See, what was the temple intended for? It was intended for God's glory. It was intended that the nations might know that God has done it, that God has provided it. But it became the primary narrative for Israel to say, we did it. And we will never be shaken, and we will never be moved. And so God has to bring destruction to the temple so that he can once again receive the glory that the temple was to give him. If you're familiar with the New Testament, where is the place that we see Jesus most upset, most worked up? It's once again in the temple. Because the temple has become not about God's glory, but about the glory of the people. That which God intended for his blessing, the people used as the source of their downfall. And so I think that the warning that remains for us as the church is don't let it happen to us. We cannot stand here as a church and say, we have been established on a mountain. We can never be shaken. We can never be moved. This is not our story. This is not for our glory. This is for the glory of God. And as long as the church uses the blessings of God to say, He did it, He did it, He did it, then He will continue to bless His church. But if His church begins to say, I shall not be moved. I got this. I shall not be moved. 
I've got this, then only one thing will happen. God will humble you so that once again his name can be glorified. See, this psalm is literally about God receiving the credit due him. Verse 1, I will extol you. It's this picture of putting God up high. David knew he was down in a pit, and David knew he couldn't get himself up. And so as David is lifted up, guess what happens? God's name is simultaneously lifted up. We as a people, as we've died in the waters of baptism, we're brought out of that pit of baptism. Guess what should happen to the name of God? It simultaneously is lifted up and glorified. And the psalm ends with this notion that I will give thanks to you forever. That that it doesn't matter how far away we move from the deliverance from the pit that we've received. That we will continue to tell about what God has done. And we will continue to express our thanksgiving to God. My prayer is that we will never become overconfident in ourselves. That we will always joyfully and willingly tell the story of what God has done. My prayer is that we will not use the blessings that God has given us as a source of our own pride or our own self-confidence, but they will continue to redirect so that God will receive glory. God's glory should be in all and over all and through all things. May we, like David, ensure that God receives forever the thanks and the glory and the praise due His name. And so as we make an effort to do this this week, I offer this blessing. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord shine his face upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. And here's why we go out with confidence. It is because of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. If you need somebody to pray with this morning, I'll be in the back. Some of our elders will be back there. We invite you to come to the back while together we stand and sing.